Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hi, I'm Lauren Dempster. Welcome to LawPod. I am a lecturer here at the School of Law at Queen's University Belfast. Today, I am joined by Dr. Cheryl Lawther and Professor Kieran McAvoy to discuss truth recovery in Northern Ireland. So, to begin with, by way of context, uh, can you both tell me a little bit briefly about the conflict and peace agreement in Northern Ireland? Okay, I'll kick off, Lauren. Um, the I mean, the, com- the conflict was was a very complicated one, but there were to summarise it for the purposes of a discussion on truth recovery. Um, the conflict went on for about thirty years. So there were three main protagonists to the conflict. There were Republicans um, who were seeking a united Ireland. There were Loyalists um, who were seeking to protect um, the union with Britain, and there was the British state as a as the third protagonist in in the conflict. It was a brutal and a nasty conflict. Three thousand seven hundred people lost their lives during it. Over forty thousand people were injured, and indeed. In some surveys that were done by the Victims Commission, up to a third of the adult population actually meet the statutory definition of being a victim. So the the conflict directly affected large swathes of our population. Um, It came to an end formally in in, uh, 1984 with the Loyalist and Republican ceasefires. In 1998, we had the Good Friday Agreement. The Good Friday Agreement um, addressed a range of issues in the conflict, including the establishment of, of a devolved assembly in Northern Ireland, North-South relations um, between the Republic and Northern Ireland, and East-West relations between Britain and the island of Ireland. Um, and the it was a complicated piece of work, but the one thing that was left out of the Good Friday Agreement um, was an overarching mechanism to deal with the past. A lot of analogous peace agreements would, would contain, for example, a truth commission, but I think a lot of the people who were involved in the, in the negotiation of the Good Friday Agreement felt that it was already complicated enough to get that deal over the line, and therefore an overarching mechanism to deal with the past was not included And as a result of that. Okay, so given that absence then, Kieran, can you tell us about the main attempts that we've seen since then to address the legacy of past violence, I guess, obviously with a particular focus on truth recovery? So what we've seen is a piecemeal approach in effect wherein the criminal justice process has stepped in and been involved in different aspects of dealing with the past. So, for example, the inquest system has been very prominent, uh, uh, inquest into controversial deaths, um, which had happened during the conflict. And we've had a range of public inquiries into particular controversial events, probably the most high-profile um, one is the Savile Inquiry into, into the deaths of, of um, 11 civilians in Bloody Sunday. We've had uh, work done by the Police Ombudsman's Office investigating allegations of malfeasance involving the police. And uh, former Chief Constable uh, Sir Hugh Ward also established a police-led investigative mechanism, the Historical Inquiries Team, to carry out um, an investigation of all originally unresolved deaths, but all deaths during the conflict um, were reviewed as well. The wheels came off that for a, re- a range of uh, complicated political reasons. So that's what we've had. We've had a, a bit of a mess, to be frank, that these different bits of the criminal justice system attempting to address it. And therefore, what 
we've had a number of stages of negotiations where people were trying to agree um, a set of different mechanisms to, to pull it all together, if you like. We had a process in two, well, we had a, a, an initiative set up by previous Labour government, uh, the consultative group on the past, uh, also known as the Eames-Bradley report, which recommended, in effect, the establishment of a legacy commission, a truth commission by another name. That was not implemented. In 2013, we had negotiations under uh, two American diplomats, Hasso Sullivan, and the architecture more or less emerged during that of, of what ultimately became in 2014, the Stormont House Agreement, wherein four mechanisms were proposed rather than one mechanism to deal with the past. And we are as yet awaiting the implementation of that. So that was in 2014. Legislation is meant to be forthcoming in 2020-21 to actually implement that agreement or a variant thereof. But we are still to, to see the a final shape of that legislation. So it's been a very long and convoluted process. Thanks for that, Kieran. We'll come back round towards the end to Stormont House and where we are with that. Now, I think then for my next question, obviously you've both conducted extensive research in Northern Ireland. So could you both tell me perhaps in addition to these formal mechanisms that we've seen and formal proposals that we've seen, could you tell me about any sort of informal or grassroots led forms of truth recovery you've come across, um, for example, community led efforts or the work of particular victims groups or NGOs? Cheryl, would you like to go first on that one? Sure. So I think as a consequence of what Karen was describing as the piecemeal approach to truth recovery in Northern Ireland, and the fact that historically Northern Ireland has had a very strong and a very active civil society, there has been a very wide range of community-led efforts at truth recovery or specific initiatives driven by particular NGOs or victims groups, for example. And that has really spanned the spectrum from community-led inquiries into specific uh, atrocities or incidents within that, that community. So say, for example, the New Lodge 6 inquiry, or uh, bespoke community-led efforts at truth recovery, such as the Ardoin Commemoration Project. It's also sort of crossed into the more creative domain. So, for example, you'll see that a lot of victims groups in Northern Ireland on both sides of the political divide have created what are known as memorial quilts, where different members of the community, typically but not exclusively women, have come together to create patchwork quilts which commemorate and represent the deaths of their loved ones. But we've also had significant interest and activism around truth recovery within the arts. So, for example, there have been numerous community-led plays around truth recovery or um, just around really visualising and representing specific atrocities, uh, such as the play that's associated with the Bala Murphy atrocity. Victims groups as well have also uh, done their own forms of truth recovery. Some of those have been much more high profile. Others have been quite unique and specific. So, for example, some of the work that we have been doing over the last number of years, we have been going out with victims groups and they have done sort of memorial tours or walking tours of local areas. And that in itself, you could argue, is a form of truth recovery where you're visiting a local area and you're hearing about the experience of violence in that specific place and time. What a number of victims groups have also done, and obviously that occurs largely below below the radar for reasons of sensitivity, is that some victims' organisations, when individuals have been ready and when they have wanted to do that, they have arranged one-on-one meetings with people who were involved in the act of violence that affected their family. 
And sometimes that has been about an exchange of information. Sometimes there has been an issuing of an apology sometimes it's just been to put a face to that person. So I think really across the spectrum of community-led efforts or those led by NGOs, there's been a really diverse range of truth recovery in Northern Ireland. Thank you, Cheryl. Kieran, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I mean, one of the, the interesting things about this place is that precisely because of the lack of an agreed uh, top-down approach to dealing with the past, as Cheryl was saying, what we've seen is a significant amount of community energy and in effect, civil society often has been the driver for what we would term as academics, transitional justice from below. And there's been a, a, there's been a coordinated uh, effort by civil society to step into the space because the state has um, largely failed to come up and the political parties have failed to address this issue. One of the other drivers in all of this, and again, it's a tends to be, it has been driven by civil society groups, particularly the local human rights NGO, the Committee on the Administration of Justice, and a number of activist lawyers, is that there have been challenges for failures by the British government to properly investigate particularly controversial killings where state actors were involved or where there were allegations of collusion between state actors and uh, usually loyalists, but also Republican paramilitaries in some instances. And what has happened in that case is that uh, the human rights NGO, the CAJ, and the local lawyers have taken cases to Europe, to the European Convention of Human Rights, and the, Europe, the British government has, bound, has been found to be in breach of its international legal obligations under the ECHR and the in a particular Article 2, which guarantees the right to an effective investigation after a state killing. And so what's happened there is that legal framework, which again is driven largely from below, from, from litigation, has been... If you like, it has come up from the activism from below and it has it has framed the discussions and the conversations that the state and the political parties have had to negotiate. So everything that has been done so far in the, in the legacy process, the key watchword has been that it has to be Article 2 compliant. And it's been quite interesting, I think, for us as academics to see just how that language has just has become normalised. And one will often see it be in community, in community meetings where community activists will be talking about Article 2 and they know what they're talking about. So it's been a really interesting process here where the language of law has become normalised into that civil society activism that we've been talking about. Thank you both for that. Cheryl, I want to come back to you now. Obviously, you've carried out substantial research on the relationship between unionism in particular and truth recovery in Northern Ireland. Can you tell us a bit more about the politics of truth recovery here? Yeah, so I think it's important, first of all, to be clear that the politics of truth recovery doesn't just reside within the the unionist and the loyalist community. Mm. But really, as Karen said, if you take it back to 1998, the politics of truth recovery or the politics of the past, perhaps more accurately, has been a huge stumbling block to actually being able to deal with the past in Northern Ireland. In that, as Karen said earlier, a mechanism or some kind of product for dealing with the past was not included in the 1998 Belfast Agreement by virtue of the fact that it was deemed simply too controversial or too difficult. And there was a concern that the politics of the past would actually have meant that the the Belfast Agreement or the Good Friday Agreement of 1998, it just simply wouldn't have got over the line. So that politics of, of truth recovery or the politics of the past has always been there. And that effectively is traceable to the question that's still not been resolved of what the conflict in Northern Ireland was actually about. Um, And so from a unionist perspective on that, um, the unionist perspective on the conflict in Northern Ireland is that this was an act of terrorism or an act of criminality. 
and that the security forces were involved in securing peace and order and effectively holding the line in Northern Ireland. And tied into that then is the the definition of victimhood that is favoured within the unionist community or the broad unionist community. And that is despite the fact that we have the Victims and Survivors Order of 2006, which provides the legal definition of a victim, which is an inclusive definition of victimhood. Unionist political elites and members of the security forces in particular have favoured a very strict division between innocent and guilty victims. And they term guilty victims those who became victims as a result of their participation in conflict, particularly and specifically those who were members of paramilitary organisations. And so that backdrop around a narrative of the security forces having to hold the line and securing peace and order and a strict division between who was on the side of good and who was on the side of causing mayhem in Northern Ireland has very much conditioned their attitudes towards truth recovery. And so within certainly within unionist political elites and members of the security forces who are much closely associated with the Royal Ulster Constabulary, the uh, previous police force in Northern Ireland, their attitude to truth recovery is it would disrupt that narrative of blamelessness, that it would suggest that the state and indeed the security forces were in some way to blame for some of the events of the conflict and some of the causes of the conflict in Northern Ireland. So there is a narrative of innocence and a narrative of blamelessness in there. And there is a real fear that a process of truth recovery would unpick that narrative um, and would suggest that, in fact, actually there is culpability right across the board in Northern Ireland. And so there is a concern that a process of truth recovery would create what unionists have called the myth of equivalence between particularly between members of the security forces and between members of paramilitary organisations, suggesting that they both bear some responsibility for some of the atrocities that occurred in Northern Ireland. There's a profound sense of loyalty to the security forces and to the state within the broader unionist community, and they do not want to see that narrative or that history or collective memory of the Royal Ulster Constabulary disturbed. And there's also a profound sense that the security forces sacrificed in the name of peace and security. And so to unpick the details of the past and perhaps uh, cast a less positive light on their activities during the conflict would be to betray that sacrifice. Thank you for that, Cheryl. Perhaps now, could you both say a little bit more about some of the other challenges facing truth recovery efforts in Northern Ireland? Kieran, would you like to go first on that one? Yeah, I mean, I suppose the biggest challenge at the moment in the in the dealing with the past debate is around the issue of pressure at Westminster for an amnesty for British soldiers who served here during the conflict, which would presumably also extend to the police and members of, of the security services, MI5 and so forth. And there's a, a significant political pressure around that issue. There are a small number of, of prosecutions, uh, conflict prosecutions that are in train. And I think there's uh, five or six soldiers in the system as well as the, the majority have been paramilitaries, but there are five or six soldiers who are uh, going through the courts at the moment. None of them will serve more than two years. But despite the long negotiations involving the two governments and the five political parties and the commitments that were made in around the Stormont House Agreement, there, there is a, a recklessness to the current government and the current Conservative government around this issue. And there's a determination that no um, British soldier will serve a day in prison. And this, they, from my perspective at least, that, the, that intent 
is oblivious to the consequences of the, that drive for impunity for the local political accommodations that were made here around dealing with the past. For me, that's the biggest challenge at the moment is trying to inform and educate the Conservative government at the moment and, and backbench Conservatives in particular around the risks associated with a drive towards impunity for British soldiers. I, from my own perspective, I think that there are lawful ways to deal with the past and indeed to keep people out of prison um, and to honour the previous agreements that were made. But that, that that's a little bit detailed and a little bit complicated. And sometimes one thinks that politicians across the water have the attention span of a gnat when you try to explain some of these issues. So for me, that's the biggest challenge at the moment is that drive for impunity coming from Westminster um, for former soldiers. Thank you, Kieran. Cheryl, do you want to come in on this question about the other challenges facing truth recovery here? Sure, absolutely. And I think it's very much a layered process or an intersection of different layers and different challenges when we talk about the problems facing truth recovery in Northern Ireland. And as Kieran has said, like the broader politics and the the relationship between the Westminster government and what has actually happened and continues to happen in Northern Ireland is highly problematic. But then when we also take that back to the more local level, the Northern Ireland level, the, there's a very interesting uh, podcast last week done by the BBC Red Lines production uh, featuring the Lord Chief Justice Sir Declan Morgan. And in that podcast, which we can link for any of our listeners today, uh, so Declan Morgan was saying that really um, it's the community in Northern Ireland that needs to decide about how truth recovery is done and how the debate on truth recovery is taken forward. And I think in a way that's a really interesting proposition. And he suggested something like the Patton style commission, which was the Patton commission. It was the commission that introduced reforms or was responsible for introducing reforms to policing in Northern Ireland. And they had a number of sort of public meetings where members of the public could go along and really give their perspective on the changes that Patton was proposing to the Royal Ulster Constabulary. And the Lord Chief Justice was suggesting something similar for deciding on how best to take the debate on truth recovery forward in Northern Ireland. And for me, when I, w- I was listening to that, and I don't know what you thought about this, Kieran, but he said, effectively, that has been done. You know, with the consultative group in the past, there has been those big town hall style public meetings. And I know I certainly went to, to three or four of those in 2009. Um, and the consultative group in the past also engaged in that massive process of public consultation. I think they received something like over 2,000 individual letters as well as bilateral meetings with different groups and different organisations across Northern Ireland and beyond. So in effect, that style of public consultation has been done and has been continued to be done in respect to the Haas O'Sullivan proposals and the Stormont House Agreement. I think that raises one interesting question, but also there is a question which I suppose was a sort of subtext to what Sir Declan Morgan was saying, is that He said, you know, the community has to decide. And we know that within transitional justice, there is a real concern and there's a very real fear that sometimes victims' voices can be captured by more powerful influences. And so we have seen that in numerous occasions in Northern Ireland, right across the peace process, whether that was in respect to the release of paramilitary prisoners or in relation to the reform of the police service, that 
and indeed in respect to different efforts at truth recovery and the conversation around dealing with the past, victims' voices have sometimes been captured and, and projected into the public domain in a way that actually doesn't necessarily always advance their needs. Um, and so I think that is something that we need to be really careful about that when we're talking about you know, how to take this debate forward and what the challenges of truth recovery are, is that there needs to be a balance between you know, really hearing people's voices and, and really hearing from those who are most affected by the conflict, but also make, and, and getting those voices to the places where they need to be heard and understood, but by the same token, making sure that those voices um, are not used to retrench the politics of the past. Um, and I think just to maybe kind of conclude my contribution to this question, the other challenge in there um, is from a very human perspective. Um, and that perspective is we are now sitting in September 2020. Many victims and survivors who were affected by the conflict and whether they you know, are still looking for some form of truth or information about what happened to their loved one, those individuals are ageing. And the chances of getting that piece of information or that little piece of truth that they desire is ever decreasing by the day. So I think there is a huge time challenge as well here. Thank you both. There is a lot of food for thought in there. I guess my final question then for today would be for you, Kieran. Obviously, you, along with a number of colleagues, have been doing a lot of work around legacy in Northern Ireland. Perhaps you could briefly tell us a little bit more about that work and give us a sense of the current state of play. Okay, well, the Stormhouse Agreement was agreed in 2014. It had four components. So instead of having a truth commission, in effect, we had a disaggregated uh, four different mechanisms for doing different things. So the the plan was to establish a historical investigations unit, a police-led investigative mechanism, primarily function of which is to is to bring truth to families, but also the potential for prosecution. So that's one uh, one element of it. The second is a, a body called the Independent Commission on Information Retrieval, which is a body essentially allowed its uh, for, it's taken from the model of the disappeared here in Northern Ireland, wherein people were able to provide information um, and that information couldn't be used for prosecutorial purposes. So ex-combatants or, or former state actors could provide information, which would be designed to bring some closure to victims, and that couldn't be used for, for prosecutions. The third mechanism is a thing called the Oral History Archive, and the idea is to take storytelling as a, as a way of capturing the the experiences not just prim- not just directly of victims but also of others who are, are directly affected by the conflict so for example you could be looking at the children of people affected by the conflict you could be looking at people who served in the ambulance service teachers the way in which conflict affected the whole community not just here in northern ireland but also in, in britain and in the republic and then the fourth mechanism it's a, mechan- it's a mechanism which is designed to pull together the individualistic um, focus of, of the other three and to put that together into one big picture narrative as to what happened during the conflict. And that's called the Implementation and Reconciliation Group. And the idea was to have political appointees who'd be overseeing the work of a team of academics who would write up, in effect, the history of the conflict. That also was extremely controversial, as you can imagine, given the idea that you appoint politicians to then govern what academics say or don't say in terms of writing the big picture history. That was agreed in 2000. 2014. Draft legislation eventually emerged and the government has basically dragged its feet. And then in March 2020, 
in, a, in the context where the British government is introducing an overseas, it's called the Overseas Operations Bill. It's in effect a presumptive amnesty for soldiers who served in overseas theatres, Iraq, Afghanistan, etc., that they can't be prosecuted after five years. That that legislation is coming now. It's, it's due for second reading the end of this month, in um, September 2020. And when that announcement was made, um, at the same time, the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland said equivalent legislation will be forthcoming for for veterans who served in Northern Ireland. So in effect, this was driving a coach and horses through the Stormont House Agreement. And he also went on to say that um, while they were moving away from the Stormont House Agreement, they were sticking to the principle of it. And he was talking about something like investigations light or something. I mean, it, it was a it was a, <laughs> it was made up on the spot kind of policy essentially it was a page and a half of of uh, fairly content free fairly rule of law free kind of discussion very populist and there's a strong sense i think from those of us who follow legacy matters closely here it had all of the trappings of of number 10 itself and uh, potentially Domin- dominic cummins the, the uh, the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff. And so there was a breezy arrogance to it without engagement to the detail. So that's where we're at at the moment. We have a, le- a piece of legislation, which is, as I said, due for second reading on soldiers who have served overseas, presumptive presumption of an amnesty for them. And there will undoubtedly be efforts by backbench Conservatives to introduce amendments to that, to extend that legislation to include um, people who served in Northern Ireland, soldiers who served in Northern Ireland. If that happens, and um, the Stormont House Agreement, I think to all intents and purposes is dead. If the government holds its line and says, well, no, we're going to do a separate legislation for Northern Ireland, and then we'll see the shape of that, I would imagine, probably the spring of 2021. And then we'll see what Stormont House Light actually looks like. But it is fair to say that that idea of Stormont House Light has gone down extremely badly with the Irish government, who signed the the Stormont House Agreement with the other and with a number of the other local political parties, and this would all have to be uh, it would all have to be agreed in the in, in the Stormont Assembly. So the idea that you would get any kind of consensus on uh, something driven through by the British government primarily to afford impunity to British soldiers, then getting that through uh, uh, the Northern Ireland Assembly would seem highly unlikely to me. So we're in a very difficult space, Lauren. We are. Highly I think we are in a very, very difficult space. It's also not clear to me how any of the easy arrogant suggestions coming at the, uh, since in, in 2020 from the current government would meet the standards of Article 2, the, the legal requirements of the European Convention of Human Rights. So it's a pretty dark place. Thank you, Kieran, and thanks to both of you for your contributions. You have been listening to LawPod, an informed take on current events, brought to you by the law students and staff at Queen's University Belfast. This episode was produced by Richard Somerville. Our theme music is by Colonel Chocolate and the Justice Triangle. LawPod is funded by the Queen's University Law School. Thank you to Cheryl Lother and Kieran McAvoy. Please follow us on Twitter at QUB LawPod. For more information, you can also visit our website, lawpod.org. And please have a look in the show notes for more information about the topics covered today. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I am Lauren Dempster, and this was LawPod.